Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and let's, let's get started. Um, I, will, I will tell you that this morning, unfortunately, I, uh, I will not be playing piano for you this morning uh, because, uh, well, just, you know, my fingers are cold. It's so, it's so cold outside. I could, but I just, I didn't bring it with me. I didn't bring my guitar with me. Jay is, unfortunately, like so many others, he is... Uh, he's got some COVID positivity in his house, and so he is so he is not coming in today. So so please uh, uh, just please keep him in your prayers. Um, uh, you know, also keep uh, keep several others in your prayers. Mitchell is is uh, has tested positive for COVID. So has uh, well Becky and her family are all hopefully on the back end of it. That happened for them early in the week last week. Um, which ruined their Christmas break, but it, but at least they're all getting better. Um, and so it's just going around the church. As a matter of fact, y'all may not have noticed, but on this past Sunday, well, just before Christmas, the last, really all through the month of December, but particularly those two last Sundays before Christmas, we were back up in personal, in-person attendance to pre-COVID numbers before, uh, before Christmas. And then, of course, if you were here, Christmas Sunday, which is usually a low Sunday, but then last Sunday you'd see that we were back down to about 300 in person. Um, okay, we'll throw in that San Antonio's winter also happened last week, and I would and I would say too, I love seeing your your I love it when all you ladies make in your furs make their annual appearance. They're, you know, joking with Barbara Ann the other day, she said this one, this one fur garment for, for what, 30 years, I think you said? That's because it's only been worn five times. I mean, so, I mean it's, it's, it's like new. It's in mint condition. It's beautiful. Um, but, uh, but, yes, okay, so it was, it was the cold. Uh, <laughs> just like, you know, you know, I know all of us were watching on, on, uh, on the news when the people in I-95 were absolutely snowed in, thinking, that's just like here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it is funny whenever whenever we talk about the cold here. Joe Moore, bless his heart, who spent most of his ministry up in Vermont, starts rolling his eyes. Um, but it is, but but uh, you know, I can say though that it is it is good to have all of you all here, and and I can say just definitively that just looking around the room that uh, that the best people got here. It's just uh, no. Uh, it, it's either either that or the rapture happened for real, and we all got left. Uh, it's it's one of the two. It's a but you that's right. You remember, so you all know Trip Stewart, who's the clerk of our session and everything like that. And he he uh, he is going back and he's watching the old Revelation series right now. And he he called me in a panic the other day. Said I can't find chapter thirteen. I can't find chapter thirteen. It's not online. I can't find the videos. Anything like that? Did you not do anything on chapter thirteen? I just told him. I said, well, you know, remember, you know, Trip, chapter thirteen of Revelation is where the the, the pre tribulation rapture is def, uh, rapture is defended and defined in in exhaustive detail. So I just didn't I just didn't cover it. Um, I'm just kidding. It didn't happen. That's not what happens. In Revelation 13, but uh, but uh, but in any event, it's it is good to have you all back here for another season of Pastor's Bible Study. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what we'll be doing this this year. Hey Ross, can we turn this down a little bit? It feels a little it sounds a little hot to me. I feel like I'm. It sounds like if I start really preaching, I'm going to blow y'all out of the room. So yeah, what, what did you say? Or maybe not. I don't know. That's that's okay too. Um, but it's going to be a, we're going to have a fun semester. It's going to be an interesting semester because, uh, so you'll have, you'll be having some special guest teachers in, uh, in this semester because I'm going to be doing some mission related travel over the next few weeks. One of the things you'll see on your syllabus is in, in just a couple weeks we'll not be meeting. Um, it's actually on, uh, on February 3rd, we will not be meeting because the ECO National Conference will be taking place and all of the pastors and, and, uh, and program staff of the church are supposed to be there. And so to, to enforce the uh, importance of that event, we will not be meeting that week and we'll just postpone. But, um, but there'll be other times when you will be blessed with some, some, good, some great guest teachers and friends. And so um, I'm looking forward to those times. But, um, but this is going to be a fun study. I, if, let me put it this way. If you, liked, uh, if you like numbers, I hope you will like uh, Joshua. 
uh, because here we are at, at, at the beginning of a new year, and, uh, and, and you know, you'll remember what, you know, what did I say about the book of Numbers before? The That's right, I said that the, the book of Numbers is usually where New Year's resolutions go to die, because as I said in the book of Numbers, uh, you know, people start off with that New Year's resolution. I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. And they get through, they start reading on January 1st with Genesis 1-1. And they just start reading. They get excited. And man, the, the Bible comes alive. And then they get to Exodus. They're like, ah, oh, this is great. I've even seen this movie with Charlton Heston and everything. So they read through Exodus. And, and towards the end of Exodus, like, okay, things are starting to get a little bit weird here. It's starting a lot of rules and regulations. Then they get into Leviticus. And Leviticus is all those sacramental and sacrificial rules and the law of Moses and the holiness code and all those sorts of things. And people start thinking, okay, I've heard about this. This is, this is the part about bearing your cross. I can read through Leviticus and I can make it through this. There's some stuff that kind of makes me ask questions and makes me scratch my head, but, but I'm going to read through Leviticus and I know there's good stuff here. And then they get to numbers and they start reading those census numbers and the tribe of Judah had this many people and the tribe, tribe of Benjamin had this many people and the tribe of half tribe of Manasseh had this many people and they look at that and they say I'm out I can't do it a whole book of numbers a whole book of uh, a whole a whole study on census information I can't do it and that's why I say that that's where New Year's resolutions go to die people who people who would have kept on reading stop at that point and and I said that part of the problem there is that Numbers suffers from bad marketing. Remember that I said that the, the title uh, Numbers actually comes from the Greek designation of the book of Numbers, and the, book, and, and the title is Arithmoi, which uh, we get the word arithmetic and everything else. Well, that's because the Greeks, maybe they didn't finish their, news, uh, their New Year's resolutions, they are the, the ones who gave that, that name, because when they started reading it, they started seeing all those census counts and all those sorts of things, all the logistics and everything like that. And they didn't stick around long enough for the stories of the book of Numbers. Because that's what really grabs you. And last semester we talked about all those really unbelievable and exciting stories in the book of Numbers. And if you remember, I told you that the Hebrew name for the book of Numbers is not Numbers, but it is Bamidbar. And what does Bamidbar mean? It means in the wilderness. Now that is a book title. That is a movie title. That's something that can get you going. In the wilderness. We've all had those wilderness experiences in our lives where we, where we learn grit and character through hardship and we have to learn what it means to dig deep and we discover what our character really is. You know, there's the old expression that sports don't build character, they reveal it. Well, the wilderness doesn't build character, it reveals it. And we, we discovered in the wilderness that God forged His people on this anvil of hardship and they came out stronger for it. So, so we studied that last semester, and, and now we're beginning the book of Joshua. And you may be asking yourself, well, wait a minute, Bob, we skipped the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is between the book of Numbers and the book of, of Joshua. And I want you to think about it kind of like this. Um, if you read Luke's Gospel, and then you read the book of Acts, you discover that Luke and Acts are actually part or two volumes of the same book, two volumes of the same work. Now, I'm not saying that, that Numbers and Joshua are the same thing, but, but you have Luke and Acts, which are two volumes of the same story, and then you've got the Gospel of John inserted in the middle because John is, is again, the, the story, the memoir of Jesus' life, and the people who organized our, our Bible decided to put all the Gospels together rather than keep Luke and Acts together because they felt like, well, this makes more sense from the storyline. I'm not questioning that decision or anything like that, but, but we need to know that Luke and Acts are actually two parts of the same story. Well, I want to present to you the idea that, that Numbers and Joshua are part of the same story, are really the same story. One is, one, is kind of the time of planning, and preparation. The other is the time of fulfillment. And Deuteronomy, in between those two things, is not alien to that, 
But I would say that it's a bridge between these two things because the book of Deuteronomy, which is something we'll go over next week, we aren't going to skip it, we're just going to deal with that next week, is really kind of a, a pause in the action where Moses gathers the people and says, all right, before we get into the promised land, these are the things we have to remember. And so the book of Deuteronomy is really an extended speech or an extended series of speeches, Moses' valedictory for, you know, for, uh, for the preparation of, of going into the promised land. And so what we see in Numbers is fulfilled in Joshua. What's planned in Numbers is brought to pass in Joshua. And so we see, we really have the kind of the, the planning and the doing in these two books. And that's why I went ahead and I wanted to connect these two books because it bridges these two phases of God's great redemption event. And so that's, that's kind of the logic behind the way I've set up this class. So if you were worried that we're skipping Deuteronomy, don't be. We're going to give that sort of, we aren't going to go into depth, but we'll, we'll give that a good treatment next week. But this week, we're going to begin talking about the book of Joshua as really the next step after the book of Numbers. We're going to be going from the wilderness into the promised land. Okay, so with that in mind, let's, let's gather with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful thing to be gathered in your house and a wonderful thing to be gathered around your word. We ask you now to just bless us and keep us so that we may understand and fully appreciate the word that you have set before us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. In 1823, President James Monroe set forth a policy of the United States in, uh, in which he declared that from now on, European and old world powers have no claim or business starting new adventures in the Western Hemisphere. He basically said the door is closed, the ramp is lifted, the gate is no longer open for you to colonize, exploit, control, or build empire in the Western Hemisphere. This is now closed to you. It was a policy that famously became known as the Monroe Doctrine. And within that doctrine, you have a very interesting phrase that comes up, that the United States would not countenance new European ventures in the Western Hemisphere, and the destiny of the new nation seemed particularly manifest in connection with this new hemisphere. The term manifest destiny was coined in 1845 and referred specifically to the Monroe Doctrine from its prohibitive nature of saying to the Western powers, you will no longer, uh, I should say the old European powers, you will no longer come here, and also referring to the idea that, that the United States had a manifest destiny to settle North America. That we had been put here, not simply by fortune or economics or politics, but that we had been put here by God to actually carry forward the settlement and, if you will, the civilization of the North American continent. Now, there were lots of different um, motives for people coming to America, you know, in the first place, from the colonies to, uh, to even those just prior to the, um, to the Monroe Doctrine. You know, they were coming for economic reasons, they were coming for political reasons, they were coming just to, to have space, whatever it was. But but all those things came together, and not just in the mind of Monroe, but also in the minds of many Americans, that, that it was not just an accident of history that, that, that the original colonies had this wide open corridor, but in fact it was a function of divine providence that God had put us and our people on this continent to settle it, to tame it, 
to develop it, to do all of those wonderful things. This is actually a, a poster from the day, kind of expressing the idea in visual form of manifest destiny. I don't know if you all can see that with the glare, but it shows the, shows the spirit of Columbia. Columbia is one of those, uh, one of those uh, statuesque goddesses that always appears in, in American iconography. You know, you've got liberty, and Columbia is the, sort of the sense of, of discovery. Well, here she is flying over, hovering over, you know, miners here and settlers, covered wagons, farmers, stagecoaches. Eventually, you've got, uh, you've got trains moving across the country. All the idea of us moving west. You know, it's kind of funny that, that when, um, when my mom was giving me a hard time about, you know, it's like, well, do you all really feel like you're being called to Texas? And I just kind of jokingly said, tongue in cheek, I said, I said, Mom, it's our manifest destiny. It's time for the Fullers to move west. Like, you know, we, we are, we're heading west, my mother. And she said, well, please write in five years. You know, it's, it's kind, of like, kind of like the old cowboy movies and stuff like that. But we were, you know, we were moving west because, you know, it was time for the Fullers to civilize Texas, obviously. Um, actually, actually, this is where my wife is from, so it was time for Texas to civilize me. But, but, what, but again, you had this, this tremendous spirit of purpose. You know, the westward expansion was not, again, was not just a cultural movement, not just an economic movement. It was a spiritual movement. And with it, with it came education and revival and religion and all these sorts of things. But, you know, even though, we, even though the United States believed that God's hand of providence was in this, they discovered that even though you think that, you know, that this land has been given to you and it's your destiny to go there, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It's one thing to claim a place, claim a land, and it's another thing to settle it. Because when they got out into all of that wide open territory, they discovered that there were people already there. You know, Native Americans, Mexicans, French explorers. I mean, there are all kinds of folks. The Spanish were already there in California. I mean, all these people were already there. And yet, Monroe and Americans of the East felt like, no, God's given us this. And so we have to, we have to move in and we have to take it. And what they discovered was that claiming something and settling something are two very different animals, and one is very much more difficult than one might think. Now, it's interesting, too, that you know, during this time of manifest destiny, you know, when you've already sort of owned this or bought into this idea that this is a, a providential movement of God, one of the things, if you're, a, if you're a, a, a church person, if you're a Christian person, one of the things you do is you go look to the Bible. And one of the places that they looked to sort of validate the idea of manifest destiny was the book of Joshua. Because in the American expansion of manifest destiny, they saw what they thought was a parallel between the people moving westward in North America and the Israelites moving into the Promised Land. Now, that has become a topic of debate and fodder and theology for generations. And I will say that there have been times when some of the best theology in the church and some of the worst theology of the church has been done when, when Joshua and, uh, and the, the history of the United States have been brought together. Because unfortunately, you know, people look back into in Joshua and they said, oh, well, if God said, move in and clear out, then maybe he's saying, move in and clear out now. And so it really causes us as contemporary Christians to look back and ask, okay, what are the parts of, you know, what are the parts when, uh, of our history when we really did validly claim the things of God? And what were the times when we really did maybe take advantage of and misclaim, use in vain, the name of God? Because whenever one people moves into another area already occupied by another group of people, there, is, there are going to be questions about that. There, going to be, there need to be deep debate about that. We see that, you know, from the book of Joshua, I mean, the book of Joshua has, has started all kinds of political uh, strife, not only in America, but if you, uh, you know, as we look to the Middle East now, for the last, you know, oh gosh, <laughs> for the last, you know, 4,000 years, there has been conflict in the Middle East. And particularly since 1948, there has been, uh, there has been conflict 
in the area of Palestine, in Israel. Why? Because at one point, the people of Israel claim, God gave us this land. Well, when the Israelis, or when the, uh, when the Jews went back after World War II, when the great European powers gave them this property, or said, we are ceding you this property, they said, well, good, this is just what Joshua gave us. Excuse me, this is what God gave Joshua. This is what, what God's already given us. But there were lots of Palestinians there, who, some, many of whom were Christian, who said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, this is, you know, you're just moving in here. We're already here. How do we handle that tension? And so there's, you know, so the book of Joshua is not just relevant in our lives in an abstract way. It is relevant on our political scene right now. I mean, and, and so there are, you know, there are quotations of it. There are uh, uh, uses and abuses of it. There is a lot going on that, that comes into contemporary political discussion, political theological discussion, political cultural discussion, political uh, social discussion, all of these things. And so it is really important that we learn what the book of Joshua actually teaches and what the book of Joshua actually says and what it meant then and what does it mean for us now. And so the book of Joshua, I think, is going to be a fascinating study. And, and here's why. I think initially it's because if, if, we, if we go back to the book of Joshua and we read it in the context of the Bible, we have to understand that the, first and foremost, the book of Joshua is a book about claiming the promises of God. So looking, uh, looking at the first few verses of Joshua. After the death of Moses, we'll talk about the death of Moses next week when we talk about Deuteronomy. But after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now, before we go any farther, we do need to take just these two phrases. My servant Moses is dead after the death of Moses. Almost casually does the Bible and do the Lord say these things. Next week we're going to be talking about just how monumental that statement is. Moses is a figure that loomed large, that, that overshadowed every other figure in the Old Testament, possibly until David, and, and still looms large all the way into the New Testament and to our culture today. And so even though it, it's sort of mentioned kind of as a byline in passing, we are not going to pass over that. And again, we're going to talk about the death of Moses. We're going to be talking about Moses next week. But again, God says, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, the Jordan River, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I promised to Moses. I've already given you. Not I'm going to give you, but I've already given you. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Hittites, to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Now, just reading those few first verses, we, we can automatically see why this is a controversial book politically. Because what, tell me the, border, the extent of the borders described by Israel here. What is, what, where is the river Euphrates? That's in Iraq, <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, you skip over Jordan completely. It's all the way over in Iraq. Where is the land of the Hittites? That's Turkey. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're talking about a monstrous chunk of land compared to what, Israel, the, what modern Israel actually occupies right now. And so, you know, you see, you know, you see that when, you know, when borders and things like that come up, you want to talk about somebody who feels like they've got a claim on something. When God says, I've given you this land, there's something, that, there's something you can sink your teeth into. But again, I, this is an important line here. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. The book of Joshua is Israel's textbook about how the, the promised land was occupied, how this gift was received. But just like the American West, the land of Canaan, though promised to Israel, 
was not unoccupied. It was occupied by a number of native Canaanite tribes. And yet the sense of Israel's manifest destiny shines through the reports and the battles and the treatises of this book. And so we're going to be reading through all of that. Let's talk about the book itself a little bit. The book of Joshua takes place about 1400 or begins about 1400 B.C. And Joshua is part, excuse me, Joshua is part two of God's grandest work of redemption in the Old Testament period. What I mean by that is that the book of redemption, that the, the great work of God's redemption in, uh, in the Old Testament began with Abraham, continued through the Exodus, and then is finally established in the, uh, the settling of Israel. And so the first part, in part one, the Pentateuch, first under the covenant with Abraham and then under the leadership of Moses, the Lord redeemed his people out of bondage in Egypt and formalized his covenant love for them at Sinai. That's the big first part of God's act of redemption in the Old Testament. Now in part two, under the leadership of Joshua, the Lord, as again, once again, portrayed as divine warrior, is going to bring his people into the land of promise and give them rest. Now, I'm going to be preaching over the book of Hebrews for the next few months, and you're going to hear me talking a lot about the rest of the Lord. You know, what it means, not, you know, what does Sabbath rest mean? What does it mean to have rest in your homeland? What does it mean to have a place and a home of your own? And so, so this is the place of God's rest. And again, God here is visualized as the divine warrior on behalf of Israel. We saw that first where? So at first in Egypt when he did battle with Pharaoh. And now, we, now we're going to see it as he does battle with all of these Canaanite tribes. Because as we see time and time again, it's not Israel who wins the land, it's God who gives them the land. It's not Israel who, who wins the battles, it's God who wins the battles. And so God is the divine warrior who is going to bring them into this land. So again, think about the thing about God's redemption story in the Old Testament is two parts. You've got the exodus, think about the word exit, exodus, and then what's called the isodus, I, uh, the ice, the E-I-S in Greek means into, X means out of, ice means into. The exodus is coming out of Egypt. The isodus is coming into the promised land and into the covenant promises of God. And so Joshua really begins part two as they are coming into the covenant promises of God. Let's review for a second the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. God promised Abraham three things. First of all, he promised Abraham a new homeland. You know, how did the whole story of Abraham start? Get up with you and your family and everything you've got and go to a land that I've promised you for, I've, for I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> it's like, you're changing your address, I've got a new place for you to live. But you're going to have a homeland. Number two, it was a promise of a people. I'm going to give you generations that will outnumber the stars of heaven, outnumber the sands on the shores of the sea. But I will give you a great people, which was a significant promise for Abraham and Sarah. Why? Because they were in their 90s and they didn't have any children. You know, I was, uh, last night there was a, um, a wonderful woman in the, uh, in the Bible study who, had, who was about to have her ninth grandchild. And I thought, wow, you know, think about how many, how, how many generations came from Abraham and Sarah. And they only had like one child through whom the promise was going. You've got nine. You're going to be in the millions. Your kids are going to be in the millions by the time multiple generations happen. But, they prom but there was the promise of a people. But the third thing was that God also promised a unique relationship with Abraham and his descendants. That unique re relationship was really cemented at Sinai. Sinai was, was where God said, not just, I am God, but what did he say? He said, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh Eloheinu, which is not just, I am the Lord a God, I am the Lord your God. Eloheinu means your God. So we have a special relationship here. And so in the Exodus at Sinai, God says, I am going to, get, I am going to, to codify 
this special relationship. And people always think, I mean, sadly, because we're so rebellious in our nature and we're so independent and autonomous in our thinking these days, we think that God's law is an oppression, that it's, a, uh, that it, that it's an obligation, that it's a burden we have to carry. But what it is, in many ways, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God is God's wedding vow to His people saying, you know, this is what you can expect from me and this is what I expect from you. And these are the vows we're making to each other. And so it's a signatory of a special relationship. The promise of a people. You know, God brought the people out of Egypt. It's interesting that even though they were living under the whip and they were living in hard bondage, the people prospered. Why was it that the Egyptian pharaoh felt like he needed to enslave the people? Because they were, they were multiplying like crazy. They were, there were too many. There were, there were just too many of them. If we don't control these people, they're going to take over one day. God continued to bless the people and continued to, to give them more and more numbers. And now finally we see that God is about to, to fulfill His promise again and take them back to that homeland that He had already given them. So we see that these, these three things are all about to be fulfilled in the book of Joshua. So the book of Joshua is about the fulfillment of the final of these, uh, really the final of these promises. These other two are still in place, but it's really about the fulfillment of this third promise. Um, the book of Joshua actually divides pretty logically in the middle. The first half of Joshua focuses on Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan, and the second half is about the distribution and the settlement of the conquered territories and, and how the Israelite tribes occupied them. And in just a minute, as we do an overview of the book, um, we'll, we'll note some of the things that were mentioned in Numbers that come to pass in Joshua. But sort of the overall theme of Joshua is this, that the people soon learned that it's one thing to be promised a land and a much harder thing to settle it. Because the Canaanites who were there were not ready to give it up. They, were, they, they felt like, no, this is, this is not your land. This is our land. So let's talk about, let's go back to the book of Numbers for a second and see something very important that was set up. You all remember that it was about the wilderness, this, this hard place where, where God forged his people. And, of course, the people in this hard place were led by Moses, this figure that looms so large. In, uh, in our history, in the Bible, and God's redemptive plan. But we see that, you know, that, that after Sinai, after, the, after they had left Egypt, after they'd, uh, they were liberated from Egypt, after they went to Sinai, they'd gotten the Ten Commandments, they moved toward Canaan, and they finally got to the edge of Canaan. They finally got there just after a couple of years of travel. They finally got there, and they were on the doorstep of the Promised Land. And in Numbers chapter 13, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving, the land, uh, giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. And then it gives the list of the names of the men. Um, and, but these 12 men are sent to scout out the land of Canaan, the promised land, this land that's been given to the people. And among them was a young man named Joshua. A young man from the name, by the name of Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim. If you remember, Ephraim was one of the half-tribes of Joseph. You know, they called the half-tribe of Manasseh the half-tribe of, of, uh, of Ephraim. Remember, that was all so it worked out so that everything still works out in 12. So when you take the Levites out of the mix and you're distributing things, you, still, you can still do the math more easily. I love the way God works. Um, but the nature of the mission was to do this. Moses instructed the scouts to do two things. Go and find out what the inhabitants of the land are like, and then bring back samples of crops grown in the land. It's fascinating that most early American, uh, European American literature is scientific studies and descriptions of what explorers found when they came to North America. Um, you know, you, you, you go back and you read colonial history. So much colonial literature is about 
these new nuts, these new fruits, these new trees, these new people, these new animals that we have seen. You, I mean, you think Lewis and Clark, they were, remember Lewis and Clark were a scientific expedition. I mean, all of these, you know, the, the conquistadors, they all had, had groups of scholars and people like that with them to kind of catalog the new things that they saw. And that's not unusual historically. Moses wanted, or God wanted the, the scouts to go into the land and check out the people and learn what was there. And the scouts, it continues, came to the valley of Eshol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. I mean, and, I mean, so they went in, they found this produce, and they discovered that this land that God had promised them was a land flowing with milk and honey. I have no idea what that means, except it means it was prosperous. I mean, that, I mean like, that would be kind of sticky and gross if the whole land was flowing with milk and honey. But, but we know what that means. It means it was a land of prosperity. But I did love grapes growing up as a kid. And I remember hearing this story first time in Sunday school. I mean, grapes were like my favorite snack fruit. You know, that was like the, the thing that I could eat with, with impunity. Eat too much candy, get in trouble. Eat lots of grapes, you're good. Um, but I remember thinking, I remember hearing the first time, that, and I remember on an on a ancient felt pad or, or flannel graph, you know, the picture of this, these two guys carrying a cluster of grapes on a pole between them. And the grapes were like the size of watermelons. And I thought, oh, how awesome would that be? You could eat like one grape all day. It would be perfect. But I thought that is so cool. But, but the whole point is to say this is how abundant this land is. It is beautiful. It is perfect. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying on the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron, and they t came to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. You know, here, here they are. They come back from their scouting trip, and the whole nation is gathered to hear them. It's kind of like, you know, like with, with uh, the moon landing. What did you see on the moon? What was it like? What was it really like to be there? They wanted to hear the report. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to a land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It is awesome. And everybody's like, yes, this is perfect. This is what we've been waiting for. But then somebody among the spies says, however, <laughs> however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Who was Anak? Anak was this legendary giant. Think Goliath's granddaddy. You know, he was. You know, he and his descendants were reputed to to be these awesome, brutish, huge titans of old. I mean, just you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're a you're a, you know, a sixth grader walking into a, a room full of NFL linemen. And it's like, ooh, these guys are huge. Plus their cities are fortified. And the Hittites are there, the Jebusites, the Amorites. They all dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. And they said, we can't go up against these people. They're stronger than we are. And they, they showed them the, you know, they showed them drawings. They, they said, this is who we're up against. The Anakim, the sons of the Nephilim, these, these mythical Goliath-like warriors. Not just, not just one Goliath with a bunch of Philistines, but whole armies of them. We can't do this. We can't, you know, we can't make it. It said, if we go in there... Even though this land has great produce, this place is, it, I love that it's an interesting play on words. It says, I mean, in this land of great produce, produce, it says, this land will consume our children. Which I think is fascinating. It's like, normally we would go in and think, oh, we can consume all this produce, but now they've turned that around saying, it's going to eat us. And so they, they got this terrible report. The cities are big, the, 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 um, uh, the people are huge. And, this, and their failure shows an utter lack of faith in God. The statement reflects, reflects an utter lack of faith in the Lord because the spies say there's no way, even with God's help, essentially, that we can do this. So that was ten of the spies. But there were two spies. Two of the spies said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We've got a minority report here. 
this is not right. Caleb quieted the crowd before Moses and said, we can do this. Let's go up at once and occupy the land for we are able to overcome it. There are two spies who stood up to the rest of the spies and stood up to the whole nation. And they said, we can do this. One was Caleb of the tribe of Judah. The other was Joshua of the tribe of of Ephraim, who was Moses' assistant. The land we explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord, they said, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They have no, no protection. Why? Because the Lord is with us. You see, the other spies, spies were looking at the world as we always look at things, in our own terms, in our own paradigms. But Joshua and Caleb saw it from the paradigm of the Lord. It's like, if God is, who us, is for us, who can possibly be against us? And so they had faith. They said, we can do this. Unfortunately, the vote was 10 to 2. And so the people listened more closely to those 10. And it's interesting, too, because if you look at Caleb and Joshua, Caleb and Joshua, were not, everybody thinks that they were both kind of these kids. And, and, and you know, and, and in the, this picture is maybe a little bit misleading. Caleb was actually probably middle-aged or a little north of that. Um, Joshua, you know, obviously much younger. But you've got like this, you know, the crowd saying, 10 of the spies just said we can't go in there, but you old man and you kid, you say we can. No, we're going to go with these 10. And listen to what the people said. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey, will be consumed. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And for that faithfulness, God punished them. Now what did God want to do first? First, God said, you know what? I'm going to wipe out this entire people and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. But I'm, I'm, I'm faithful to my covenant, but I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses said, please, please, please don't do that. Your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. You are abounding in steadfast love. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Don't become a mockery in Egypt. Don't don't let the Egyptians now say, see what God does? He takes them out into the desert only to kill them. He says, please show mercy to this people. And God's response to Moses is to relent. And remember, I I told you last semester, you know, as we read the Old Testament, as we read these stories from the Torah, it's important for us to remember that these are not theological propositions. This is a story of God told in a dramatic way, in a way that we can relate to. And to to indicate the gravity of this rebellion, this sin against God, we see an an unchangeable God who is is somehow upset. we, We know that God is eternal, that he knows all things, that he saw this coming from a million miles away, all that sort of thing. But in the drama of redemption, we see it portrayed that this is, you know, that this is a God who loves us and who connects to us on more than just simply a doctrinal level, but connects with us on a heart level. And he has been betrayed. He's been rebelled against. And, and he is angry. And so he says, I'm going to wipe everybody out. But he did relent. He listened to Moses. Moses. Moses was able to not talk him out of it, but in a sense, pray him out of it. By, what? By doing what? By appealing to God's own nature. You know who you are. And so God relented. But I want you to think about the judgment that the Lord brings on the people. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, that you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. 
Your little ones, who you said will become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and shall suffer for your faithful, faithlessness, until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. So what did God say? He said, you say, you say you'd rather die in the wilderness? Your wish is granted. Your terms are acceptable. You say your children, are, you say that I can't keep your promises, my promises to save your children? Your kids are going to occupy the land that you thought would consume them. But they're also going to suffer too because they're going to have to drag your rebellious behinds through the desert for 40 years. They're going to have to take care of you for 40 years and watch you die off as a reminder of what rebellion against God costs. But they're going to get to go in, but your entire generation is going to die out. And then he said, but you, you ten faithless spies, you're done. And God immediately took them by a plague. Doesn't specify the plague, but you know it wasn't pretty. So they die. And of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Now, the reason I went into depth about that story is because, again, this, this happened 40 years before the book of Joshua begins. You know, people always say that the, the Hebrews wandered in the wilderness. They got lost in the wilderness. They, they, they grumbled in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't have a map, because they didn't have a GPS, because they just got lost. No. The reason they wandered in the wilderness for, for 40 years was because they were rebellious. They were not, they could, it wasn't that they couldn't find the promised land. They were turned away because of their rebellion. God turned them around and said, your whole generation is going to die out. But it is interesting that one of the worst failures in is, Israel's history revealed one of its greatest heroes. Joshua came to be who he was because of this hardship because of this experience. And so, who was Joshua? Well, Joshua then rose to be anointed as the new leader of the people of Israel. Again, he was, he was younger. I think, you know, I, I, nothing against Caleb or anything like that, but Joshua was clearly the one who was going to be lifted forward. And then Joshua, as he, you know, this is, so this is Joshua as a young man, being anointed as, uh, as, the, um, as the leader of Israel. This is him in a more mature vein as he's preparing to actually lead the people into the promised land. Remember, there's a tremendous amount of time that passes between these things. But this, he, is the new er, uh, he is the new leader of Israel and takes over in about 1400 B.C. after the death of Moses. So God doesn't waste any time bringing him to the fore. I want you to look at God's words to Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all, <coughs> all the days of your life. Excuse me. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do all according to the law, uh, all according to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn it from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, key phrase that's going to happen, that, that we're going to bring up here in the, in the next passage we're going to look at. Just as I was with Moses, so will I be with you. This is God's promise to Joshua. You're not just kind of the next in line. You're not just kind of the, the most convenient choice. You're not the best we could do. As I was with Moses, so will I be with you. You can count on the fact that just as I protected him, guided him, led him, empowered him, I'm going to do that with you. I'm going to give you everything you need so that you will be able, uh, all the days of your life, so that you will be able, no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. You're going to have, I mean, what would it be like to go into any endeavor knowing that you can't lose because God is going to make it happen? That is a tremendous amount 
of confidence. And so he said, now, now, now what would that sort of unlimited authority, unlimited power tend to do with a lot of people? You can maybe corrupt them a little bit. What is it? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power corrupts. Power, uh, then absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, look, he says, so God also gives in these admonitions, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to, the, to their fathers to give them. So I want you, he says, Joshua, you're going to be fighting battles, real battles against real people with real numbers and real giants and real cities and real swords and real arrows and real spears and real fire and real death. So you've got to be bold and courageous. You have to be the kind of leader that can lead your people into battle, even against seemingly impossible odds. That's what you're going to be called to do. And so you've got to trust me. You've got to be bold and courageous. You've got to be physically bold, physically courageous. You cannot fear for your life. But then he kind of says it again. Look at that. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law, all the that all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Why is God doubling down on that idea, and what's the different shade here? Well, first, the first, I believe, is he's talking about being strong and courageous in the face of the enemy. What's this one? It's being strong and courageous in the face of your friends. I mean, doesn't leadership, doesn't authority, doesn't success tend to corrupt people? I believe that here he's telling, he's telling Joshua, be strong and courageous physically, but also be strong and courageous morally. It doesn't matter how much success you have on the battlefield, if internally the government of the people, the, trend, the tent of the leader is in corruption. We see this with David, didn't we? David had all kinds of worldly success, but then the whole Bathsheba affair. His, you know, his family fell into utter ruin. You know, we see this with our political leaders all the time. We may love what they do. We may love their policies, and yet they're moral train wrecks over here. When was the last time you had a president where you could say to your kids and grandkids, I want you to be just like that person? Seriously, I can't, we have not had a single president in a while where I would say, that, yes, that guy's a moral example as well as a political success. I don't know about you, but that makes it very hard for me to, to get really all in on some of our leaders sometimes because some of them are such moral train wrecks. And what he's saying is it's not enough to just be strong and courageous in the face of the enemy. You've got to be strong and courageous in the face of your friends because who are the ones who really lead you down the, the path of sin? It's usually, not your, it's usually not your enemies. It's usually your friends who are like, hey, we can get, we can get away with this, right? So, these two things. This is God's vow to Joshua. But the people also make a vow to Joshua. And look at, again, highlighting. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, we, so will we obey you. <laughs> Boy, what a, what a mixed message is that. <laughs> we love you, Joshua. We're going to obey you just as well as we obeyed Moses. Which is why he's dead and you're here. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> It's like getting damned with faint praise. Um, but they also said here, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Again, you know, we see the, the, the necessity for boldness and courage and leadership. You know, I'm, you know, all of us in, at some point have had to be leaders in this room where the people we were following did not agree with us. You know, do you have the courage to move forward you know, the courage of your convictions to move forward, even if everybody's standing against you. If you've never, my, one of my favorite poems, uh, the, probably one of the few I've ever had, like, been forced to memorize, but I'm glad I did, the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. If you've ever, if you've never memorized it, it's worth doing it. If you can doubt yourself, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, um, if you can, uh, gosh, it's been since sixth grade. I used to be able to recite the whole thing. If you can believe in yourself when all men doubt you, and yet make allowance for their doubting too. I mean, it's, you can, you know, do you have the courage to be able to be that, that leader? Well, this is the person that Joshua is. Um, you'll see that there are several, um, there are several things that come up, um, big stories that we don't have time to go over all of them today, but 
Um, there's some great stories that we're going to be covering in the book of Joshua. Um, the first, um, you know, the, the, the story of Rahab and the spies. You know, this one prostitute from, from Jericho. Um, you know, this nobody becomes, is not only named in the book of Joshua, but also where? In the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, the grandmother of David. Why? Because she trusted God. You know, another beautiful story, the story of the crossing of the Jordan. You know, you know Moses got to lead him across the Red Sea. Joshua gets to lead him across the Jordan, out of Egypt, into the Promised Land. Um, you know, the, uh, you've got this incredible story. Before the Battle of Jericho, Joshua meets a, a figure, a mysterious figure, mysterious like the, the strange prophet king Melchizedek, called the commander of the army of the Lord. Who is this guy? Some say an angel. Some say perhaps even a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. There's the battle of Jericho itself. In case you didn't know this, Jericho, scientists believe, is probably the oldest city on earth. Uh, meaning, uh, meaning that ever since they started define, defining cities by a particular definition, possibly the oldest city on earth. Um, we'll be talking in that case a lot about some archaeology, and it's fascinating how... So, uh, no, that not, not, not necessarily a capital of Canaan. There were, there were too many political entities in Canaan to say there was one capital. But it was, it was the, the, probably it was like the New York of Canaan in the sense that it was, the, it was sort of the big, the big deal, the big apple there. Um, the Battle of Ai. Um, the Battle of Ai, is, you're going you're gonna to be bored by how much I geek out about this. I'm a big, I'm a big military history buff. Um, and the Battle of Ai is a story of, after the Battle of Jericho, this guy, Akan, decides to go through the ruins of, of Jericho and pick up some goodies for himself against God's command, which leads to a miserable defeat for the Israelites in this little town called Ai. But then, in the subsequent battles, um, there is, it is actually a very detailed account of how the battle takes place that is actually still studied in, in war colleges around the world. And so if you're at all a military history buff, you don't want to miss the uh, story of the Battle of Ai because it really is tactically one of the most interesting uh, books in the uh, stories in the Old Testament. Um, you've got uh, other battles, the battles of the Gibeonites. Who were the Gibeonites? Let me just say at this point, they were, they were a whole tribe full of con artists who, who somehow tricked the Israelites into protecting them. Um, there, is, uh, there are many other battles that take place. And then most of the rest of the book takes, talks about the occupation of the land. And one of the things that we'll see in the second half of, of Joshua in particular is the building of and the setting up of all those cities of refuge and the cities of the Levites and all those sorts of things. All those things that were promised in the book of Numbers, that's when it comes to pass. Um, and then finally, we come to what I think is one of the great soliloquies and speeches of the Old Testament, which is Joshua's farewell speech to the people. And you'll remember that speech because it, it really concludes with this, with this awesome passage. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the, the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How many of you all have that on a plaque or on a pillow or you know, on somewhere in your house? That's one of my favorite passages. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's really the question both at the beginning of Joshua and at the end of Joshua. And it really sets up very interestingly the next book in the Old Testament, which is the book of Judges, where the people failed to take seriously that challenge. But as we go through uh, the book of Joshua, we're going to draw parallels between Moses and Joshua, 
because it is amazing how many parallels there are between the life of Moses and the life of Joshua, but it's also interesting how we will also see a special connection between not only Joshua and Moses, but, but between Joshua and Jesus. Because one interesting factoid is that in many ways Joshua does in the secular real world what Jesus does, the victor, in the spiritual world and as the eternal king. As a matter of fact, the names Joshua and Jesus are intimately related, just like, you know, John and Jonathan, Bob and Robert. Um, they are, you know, they're essentially the same name. Uh, you know, Jews refer to Jesus as Yeshua. You know, that's, that's the way he would be, that's the way it would be pronounced. And so you have a deep connection between these first, uh, between Joshua and the understanding of Jesus. And so, so we'll be looking at all of that as well. I'm sorry I've taken a little bit more time today, uh, but I wanted to kind of get us set out on those things. So I look forward to entering the promised land with you. I look forward to this journey as it continues. And everybody stay healthy. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this time today. And thank you for helping us to... Uh, thank you for giving us an opportunity to really study and understand the ways that you work with your people. Help us to understand how you have fulfilled your covenant promises through, through challenge, through hardship, and through victory. And Lord, help us to be humble as we follow you into those promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Have you ever studied the Battle of AI? <laughs> <laughs>